Well, hello, everyone. It's about the top of the hour now, so we'll get started. We're uh, pleased to present to you today an update on litigation about consumer privacy. I'm Lori Mazzacchetti, a partner at Kelly Dry and the co-chair of the Consumer Class Action Practice Group. I have been litigating, mostly defending, consumer-oriented cases involving advertising and privacy for about the last 20 years. And I'm Becca Walquist. I'm the other co-chair of the Consumer Class Action Practice Group here at Kelly Dry. Lori sits in the East Coast. I sit on the West Coast. We figured we'd covered the country between us, but we've both been for 20 years really all over the country defending consumer class actions. So uh, we're going to be focusing on litigation trends, and Lori's going to start us off with our agenda. Okay, so um, today we're going to focus on some specific statutes that are laser-focused on consumer privacy. As we're discussing trends and claims involving privacy today, we're going to talk a little bit about common law claims and other statutory claims that are more of your traditional consumer protection statutes. But our focus is really going to be on privacy statutes that have private rights of action. And we've listed them here for you, uh, the CCPA, SEPA, TCPA, VPPA, and BIPA. We're going to be talking about what's new. Some of these statutes are relatively new um, and driving some new trends in litigation. And then we're also going to be talking about some statutes that been, have been around for a while, but there have been significant updates in the legal landscape that are causing shifting trends. We're going to start with the CCPA, the California Consumer Protection Act. And again, what we're focusing on today as litigators is the private right of action litigation that is being brought by private plaintiffs generally as class action litigation. Uh, so the CCPA the current version, and this is something probably everyone here knows, it applies to entities that collect personal information about consumers that do business in California and then meet one of those qualifications that earning more than 25 million in gross revenue or buying, selling, receiving, or sharing for commercial purposes, at least 50,000 California consumers, households, devices, or uh, are involved in getting a lot of revenue from selling consumers' personal information. Essentially, kind of any big business finds itself subject to CCPA. There is a private right of action for certain security breaches. So we know that everyone is, is ramping up. There's the Colorado Act, Act for Privacy. There's the Virginia one. There's other states that are going to be coming into being. Right now, California is the only one with a private right of action. There's one that is stalled in Florida over the private right of action because there's been a big pushback from the business community that's been keeping that from getting put in place because it's the private right of action that makes this thing so scary with how many lawyers are out there that are really salivating at private right of actions. So the damages right now under the California privacy is a minimum of 100, maximum of 750, per consumer, per violation. And they can get injunctive or declaratory relief. They can get other relief. They can go for class actions, but they do need to give notice to cure a breach to the prospective defendant. That's something that will be changing with the CPRA when that goes into effect. But it's a it's something that promises a lot of class action damages. So the private right of action plaintiffs they have to, they can only do it for breaches right now. So they have three elements they need to prove. 
there has to be, you know, theft or disclosure, exfiltration of non-encrypted, non-redacted, sensitive personal information, which would be a name along with one of those other things, a social security number, government ID, you know, so forth. Uh, and, or, uh, and then a username, email address with the password or security question is a new element that's going to be added by the CPRA in 2023. And that's one that has a lot of companies very concerned because that's not maybe something that has been getting treated with the same level of security as a social security number or uh, account information. So you can bring a claim as a plaintiff. And again, we're expecting these to almost always be class action claims. Uh, if a business has failed to implement reasonable security measures and what is reasonable security? <laughs> So there's an affirmative statutory duty to implement and maintain uh, these reasonable security procedures for sensitive personal information. The state attorney generals and the FTC were enforcing this standard before we had you know, this change. And they have some standards that talk about minimum levels of security. But the truth is that the standard of what's reasonable is fluid and fact intensive and is something that we expect and have already seen plaintiff's lawyers be very aggressive with arguing what should have been reasonable and what was not reasonable. When the CPRA comes into effect in January 2023, it's going to go retroactive as to the personal data that was collected this year in 2022, which means that all of the username and password data that's been getting added in uh, since that point is subject to the CPRA. And a big change is going to be that security measures implemented after the breach are not going to be a cure. So there's not that same kind of notice and cure period once the CPRA is in effect next year. Uh, businesses performing PI processing with significant risk to privacy or security have to do annual cybersecurity audits. And we're waiting for the California Privacy Protection Agency to get more specific, defining the audit standards, and they get to conduct audits too. The increased fines that are going to be available under the CPRA are also going to lead to just a lot more activity. On the regulatory side, there's going to be a whole agency that's been getting funded and is going to get ready to start getting more active in prosecuting these things. So we've, we're seeing CPPA litigation. We're going to tell you about a few kind of recent trends. One trend though is using CPPA violations as anchors to also assert California Legal Remedies Act claims, unfair competition law claims, common law invasion of privacy claims. And don't think that this is only limited to seeing CCPA claims in California courts, because as long as you've got a California plaintiff, plaintiff's lawyers can also come after you wherever your company is headquartered and the litigation might take place there. So the claims follow the statute that we, we've been seeing in the CCPA litigation to date. A plaintiff will allege that their sensitive personal information was disclosed without authorization. The business failed to implement, maintain reasonable security procedures. And some companies right at the outset just started doing some pretty quick settlements. There was a case against Minted in the Northern District of California. There had been a, a breach of data and they did a $5 million settlement that covered over 4 million class members with attorneys getting 1.2 million. And I always point out what the attorneys get because this is what really funds 
and encourages more and more litigation is these war chests that get to start getting built up through early settlements. Dickie's Barbecue, unfortunately, had a breach that it wasn't aware of for quite some time, had multiple class actions brought against it uh, as soon as the breach was, was out there. They did a $2.35 million settlement in Texas, which settled claims, including the CCPA claims. And the way they're planning to do it in Texas is to give California class members double what the non-California class members would get. But, you know, who knows how this is going to end up because as can happen when you have multiple class actions going around, there were some plaintiff's lawyers that felt they got left out. They were not settling. And so there were the California actions that didn't get combined over into Texas, those attorneys have now gone in, moved to intervene, moved to stop the settlement, try to get named as the new class actions they're protesting. And so the Texas settlement has stayed and the judge is going to deal with challenges. So, you know, blood in the water. <laughs> this is what happens when there's money to be, to be sought after. But, you know, these are some pretty hefty class settlements, but they're also pretty hefty breaches that were behind them. We're seeing creative application of the private right of action of the CCPA being used to get over into negligence, contract claims, unfair competition, where they're saying, you know, the allegation is there was this CCPA breach and that supports these other claims. So some cases that we're we're looking at is there's a case against Yodley, in Northern District of California, plaintiffs were connecting their bank accounts to PayPal using this Yodley powered portal. And there was, uh, there's allegations that there was undisclosed and continuous data collection from Yodley. So they're up to their second amended class complaint. They are arguing that California law should apply to the nationwide class because Yodley is headquartered in California and they have a backup California subclass. So again, as class action defense lawyers, Lori and I are watching this one really carefully because uh, every company headquartered in California is one going to want to watch this very carefully. If something like a CCPA gets held to apply nationwide and not just to California residents, um, in a case like this, it can you know, cause a precedent that we were not going to like. Um, that case is alleging that the failure to disclose this uh, alleged undisclosed data collection violates the CCPA and use that as the basis of bringing unfair competition. That case is in the middle of discovery now. So we're watching that. Uh, Another case in Northern District of California against Instagram and Facebook, alleging that Instagram violated the CCPA by failing to disclose that it monitors users through their smartphone Instagram camera features. So that one uh, never got off the ground there were a lot of extensions and then, then it just dropped. But we're watching as the cases like this are being brought under the CCPA. Um, and like I said, we just expect the explosion to continue uh, as the CPRA uh, comes into effect next year. CCPA claims, claims are often dismissed on the pleadings. So there was one against Google, McCoy versus Google, alleged that uh, there was a covert program that Google uses to collect and analyze Android users' data from non-Google apps. The CCPA claims were dismissed with prejudice on the initial complaint. Even the plaintiff said that their CCPA claims were weak, but the other claims, CLRA, UCL, were permitted to proceed. 
there was a motion to compel arbitration individually granted in November. And again, you know, arbitration clauses are can be a great defense individually to class actions under, under anything, including CCPA. But uh, what happened here, the case was proceeding, the plaintiff hadn't admitted his account username until July of 2021, which was almost a year into the case. Then it became clear he'd actually agreed to an arbitration clause and Google moved to compel, it was granted. But uh, that's gonna be appealed and in the meantime, I think within a day or two of the motion to compel being granted in the McCoy case, the attorney, same attorneys brought an almost identical new class action. So it begins again. Yeah, so, so there's a few interesting tidbits on this case, um, particularly with the, the other statutory claims and the non-CCPA claims. Well, here, the CCPA claim got dismissed because this wasn't a breach situation. This was just a, you know, this is a, what Google was doing in the ordinary course. It wasn't some you know, some security breach or failure to maintain security measure situation. And that was the basis for the dismissal of the CCPA claims. But the claims that were that survived were grounded in Google not disclosing what they were going to use this data they were collecting. You know, the data, the fact that the data was being collected was arguably at least disclosed, but what they were going to use it for was not. And on that basis, the court allowed the CLRA, UCL, and some other claims to proceed on whether there was a misrepresentation in the privacy policy. So a really interesting case that kind of covers a lot of different issues. It reminds me of a law school exam question. Um, and we got a good look at what a court would do because there were successive motions to dismiss before a motion to compel arbitration came along. You know, and that was because, as Becca mentioned, you know, the plaintiff did not uh, identify themselves and what device they were using. And when Google was filing its motions to dismiss, you know, which you ordinarily would not file, you know, challenging the, the face of the complaint um, because you could compromise your arbitration uh, rights if, if you were going to move to enforce an arbitration clause. Google did not understand at that point that it had an arbitration clause that would apply that it could enforce. Um, so we went through all of this motion practice, two rounds of motion practice, amended complaints um, to figure out that the court was going to allow these, you know, you made a misrepresentation in your privacy policy about the use of data to proceed, you know, over um, you know, arguments by Google. And then, of course, uh, when it is realized that there's an arbitration clause, Google moved to enforce it. It was up against, you know, waiver arguments, having litigated as far as it did, uh, but the court rejected those waiver arguments. And, and as Becca said, here we go again with new plaintiff that, uh, you know, is not uh, subject to the arbitration arguments. So um, we'll get to see how that plays out. And, and thanks, Lori. And again, as Lori was emphasizing, a reason we wanted to specifically mention this claim is the private right of action is only supposed to be for breach, but you know, the CCPA is starting to just filter into other causes of action that we're seeing. So the big question, what can companies do to protect themselves against litigation? Uh, I mean, truth is we're big companies, uh, many of us on this call, and there's never anything you can do to completely protect yourselves because uh, you have money and somebody wants it. But what can we do tips to try to reduce the risk of litigation? Focus first on the high risk items when you're talking about CPPA. 
you should access your data inventory maps, your security programs. I'm sure you've all been having these conversations. What sensitive PI do we have? Where is it? You should have a written risk-based security policy. You should have an incident response plan, written one in case there's a breach or anything else. You want to address your obvious compliance checkpoints, the privacy policy, your do not sell links, your rights requests. You want to make sure that if you are subject to CCPA, that you have a California residence portion of your privacy policy. You want to make sure your privacy policy isn't just hidden somewhere. You want to make it in an obvious place. Uh, and are you making extra promises about security? And if you are, are you meeting those promises? So you wanna focus, those are high risk items there. And then you wanna think systematically. Uh, we're talking mostly about litigation here, but there's going to be government private enforcement. So the coming from the government too, there's regulation, you might have an audit. Um, so what you need to do, there's going to be documentation requirements. You need to look at your risk assessments potentially discoverable materials, how are you gonna handle them, monitor litigation and regulatory developments, which is, you know, everybody here's, who's here is monitoring litigation because uh, we're talking about a lot of the litigation trends here, but update your privacy policy as needed. And then third, embrace demonstrated compliance. So I just had a call recently with a client who had been told by someone they don't keep written policies because if you're not in compliance completely with them, they can just come back to bite you. And no written policies and procedures are a very good thing. They demonstrate compliance. I mean, yes, you can't have an empty policy procedure. You're doing nothing to comply with, but you need to have written policies and procedures about how you're complying with CCPA, uh, what records are going to tell your story, if you have security issues, are you resolving them, documenting what you've done to resolve it? And you need to make sure your privacy policy is accurately describing the data collection use. Don't overstate your data security measures because if you're overpromising and not meeting those promises and what you're saying out to the public, that's gonna be an issue. Uh, companies think about doing pressure tests, incident responses, practicing their compliance processes, Definitely you wanna think about having CCPA training required for personnel who handle consumer inquiries, consider different training for different audiences. It's all um, gonna be pretty big with CCPA, especially when we get into CRPA and the, and the damages are gonna be going up. So uh, that is a big private right of action statute. We're gonna now look at TCPA. Lori and I are just gonna be switching off so uh, I'll hand this one over to her. We've both done TCPA for decades. <laughs> yes, and the TCPA is not new. Um, it's been around since 1991, and it's probably been the biggest driver of privacy litigation that we have seen um, without a close runner-up. Um, as you probably all know, the TCPA covers things that happen over the phone, calling and texting. Um, it applies not just to advertising communications, but also to informational communications. And it carries with it some really uh, ugly statutory damages of $500 or in other, some instances, instances up to $500 per violation. And that has uh, caused it to be a very popular statute amongst the, the plaintiff's bar. 
And those those damages can be trebled. (laughs) Yes. As if the 500 was not enough. Um, The most common variety of TCPA claim that we've seen over the last decade is the ATDS provisions, automatic telephone dialing system. This is using certain types of automated equipment to communicate with cell phones. And where we were many years ago, uh, you know, we're, well, in 1991, when the statute was enacted, I, I think that lead generators were spraying out phone calls using uh, these systems that generated phone numbers randomly or sequentially and just sprayed out telephone calls. And advertisers in a common uh, or in the in the more recent days um, don't rely on that type of advertising any longer. We're all communicating with specific targets, whether there are existing customers, potential customers, people who have inquired or sought information about our products. Um, And where there had been a really significant debate is that when you are communicating with specific targeted phone numbers, albeit using some form of automated equipment or equipment that had automatic capabilities that maybe you weren't using, does that trigger this ATDS cause of action that carried with it a $500 per violation statutory damage um, and I compare that to the do not call provisions of the TCPA that are under section 227C that have a up to 500 that gives the court discretion, can award 50 cents per violation or 500. Again, it does have the trebling, but it gives that discretion that's non-existent in 227B that covers this ATDS uh, cause of action. And unlike some other portions of the statute, the ATDS cause of action was also pretty dangerous because the defense is prior express written consent uh, that has very specific requirements if you're using uh, the phone or sending text messages for an advertising purpose. Um, And then for non-advertising purposes, you still have to have prior express consent. I compare this to the do not call provisions that have an existing business relationship uh, exception, an inquiry exception, a safe harbor. Um, So you can see why this had become a real favorite of the plaintiff's class action bar. So flipping to the next side, the big development about a year ago, um, April, 2021, uh, the Supreme Court took up the question that was really debated for many, many years. The FCC chimed in on what technology constitutes an ATDS. And the, the question was, does the system itself, the platform itself, have to randomly or sequentially generate the telephone numbers that you're going to dial or text and then call them or text them? Um, or you know, would it apply, does the definition apply if you're using a stored list? And that was a really critical distinction because very, very few companies, I think we would have to look pretty hard to find something that's generating the phone numbers randomly or sequentially and spitting them out. So the The Supreme Court uh, came down with its decision with the narrow decision that we were hoping for um, and found that in order to qualify as an ATDS, the system at issue, the platform at issue, has to randomly or sequentially generate the phone numbers and then dial them. And you would think that would have been an end hard stop to ATDS claims, um, except the plaintiff's bar does not give up that easily. Uh, There is a footnote in the Facebook decision that uh, where the Supreme Court had noted that, you know, for instance, an auto dialer might use a random or sequential number generator to determine the order in which to pick phone numbers from a pre-produced list. 
Now this sounded quite dangerous because you know, that's computers can put things in an order. You're always dealing with data in an order, whether it's the order uh, that they're, they reside in your consumer database, or if you're prioritizing which consumers should be contacted first or picking from a sub or picking a subset from a larger set. Um, but the context of this footnote was really talking about using the type of uh, equipment that was generating the telephone numbers them itself and then storing them for later dialing. And there had been a big debate on, well, what did this footnote, footnote mean? Um, the district courts, you know, when we say they were split on it, nobody, no district court was deciding uh, or adopting the plaintiff's interpretation that simply picking numbers or selecting from, a, or putting things in an order from a pre-produced list satisfied uh, the definition but courts were allowing discovery to proceed and just punting on the issue. And we all know how painful that can be because then you're off to the races in discovery to later determine whether this very significant trigger occurred or not um, and how exposed you are on the claims. Um, but now two circuits have weighed in. Uh, the Ninth Circuit has weighed in and where the plaintiff had uh, argued that using a LiveVox platform, uh, the HCI system itself didn't have a uh, the automatic, automatic capabilities that uh, were at issue, but it was part of a larger platform. And one of the arguments that the plaintiff had made was that uh, because the system could put phone numbers in an order, um, that that was a sufficient trigger and the court rejected that argument. The next case uh, was the Eighth Circuit. And this was one of my cases, Beale versus Outfield Brewhouse, which was kind of like the perfect fact pattern for the plaintiff's bar to really take this footnote seven for a spin, uh, because in that case, we were dealing with a technology that was selecting contest winners out of a database. And it was actually using a random number generator to select the contest winners. Uh, the plaintiff's argument was that um, because the random or sequential number generator was, was selecting the records, um, that that you know, either was within the scope of what the Supreme Court had in mind in footnote seven, or, you know, satisfied the definition because it was producing those numbers by pulling them from a broader set. Um, the plaintiffs had compared the word produce um, in the context of the statute to how you would use it when you're producing discovery. We don't create the documents and then provide them, you know, the documents exist and then we're collecting them and producing them. Um, so the, the plaintiffs were saying produce in this context and, and as supported by footnote seven in their arguments was that that was sufficient. And you know, the real danger here with respect to this interpretation, with respect to footnote seven or how the word produce should be interpreted was that you know, Facebook really created this very narrow set of equipment that would be uh, able to qualify as an ATDS and if you were to bring back in every type of equipment that could select from a subset uh, or put things in an order, we would basically be bringing back in everything that we just excluded uh, by virtue of the Facebook decision. But grateful, gratefully, I'm happy to report to you that uh, the Eighth Circuit saw it our way. Uh, the Eighth Circuit said that you, know, you have to view, produce in context I was a, when I was arguing before the Eighth Circuit, I tried to use an example of saying like, you know, context really matters. We may use certain words in different contexts and they mean different things. One of the examples that I gave is, 
you know, when we say that, you know, the justices take the bench, we all know that that means the judges walk into the courtroom and sit on the bench and they take the bench. We, we don't uh, interpret that to mean that they come in and take a piece of furniture out of the courtroom and leave with it. Uh, the justices found a, a, a better uh, example than the one I even used and said, you know, an electrical generator uh, produces electricity by, by creating it. It doesn't, it's not, you know, uh, not uh, generating electricity by getting that which already exists. Um, so they, they accepted that context matters and found that equipment, even if you're using a random or sequential number generator to do something other than to uh, generate the phone numbers, it doesn't qualify as an ATDS. And as I mentioned, this is really important because you know, something that I learned uh, through these cases is that's how computerized systems work. Our computerized systems, a lot of them use random or sequential number generators for different functions. Um, and if it's just having that type of functionality embedded for whatever purpose, there's a lot of technologies that would satisfy ATDS, but, uh, but we are uh, not there. So what does this all mean? It means ATDS cases, the, the number of suits that are being filed are plummeting significantly. Um, but as I said, the plaintiff's bar is not going to go away so quietly. Um, and they've really just changed their focus to the other claims that Facebook you know, didn't address. And these are the 227C claims I mentioned before, the do not call claims. We see a significant uptick of do not call claims being filed, and in particular in the context of text messaging. Now the FCC has told us that calls are texts and query whether DNC provisions were intended to apply to texts. Uh, the, the prevailing view amongst the court seems to be that texts are covered by the DNC provisions as well. And then secondly, uh, also under the very same provision that I mentioned you know, for ATDS 227B that has that 500 per violation rather than the up to that applies to do not call, um, that also covers pre-recorded message calls. This is when, you know, not a, a natural person's voice, but I, you know, a recording of a natural person's voice or a computerized voice is being used on calls. We are seeing a very significant uptick in those types of claims. There is such a laser focus on pre-recorded message claims uh, that uh, it's probably the more, most common filing of TCPA litigation that we see. Now there's something else to be aware of because now you know we're taking this deep breath and saying the ATDS claims are gone and this creates a much more manageable world for us to live in because we if we honor do not calls and we don't use pre-recorded messages we should be good right well now we have some states perking up in Florida in particular clearly dissatisfied with the Facebook decision uh, amended their telemarketing statute to basically redefine the type of equipment trigger uh, to look like something before the Facebook decision was decided. So basically, you know, automated equipment, and it's a pretty expansive definition that we're still learning through the courts what that means, um, but is going to bring back in um, all of the things that Facebook would arguably throw out with respect to the equipment trigger, and there's the same type of statutory damage relief available. Um, we see a ton of Florida cases filed, both in state and federal courts in Florida. Um, under this statute, it has definitely created a new wave of litigation. So what can companies do to protect against uh, TCPA litigation in this new world? Well, 
uh, if you're calling or texting, you know, we really need to be focused on those do not call provisions. Um, as I mentioned before, there is a safe harbor. And especially for those companies that are just texting and you're maybe not thinking about having a do not call policy because you're texting only on consent. Well, now you want to check those boxes because you want to have your written procedures, your training of your personnel. You want to have, you know, you may call it your opt out list or honoring opt outs, but we need to, you know, reorient ourselves and describe that as our, our internal do not call list. Um, we want to make sure that, you know, we are um, doing all of the things that are going to put you in a position uh, to avail yourselves of that safe harbor defense, even if you are texting on consent. And Lori, let me throw in that you might think you're not doing marketing texting. And I would invite you to check with whatever your texting group is doing and look at the texts that they're sending because dual purpose texts will be considered marketing texts. And can't tell you how many companies are like, oh, we're not marketing. But when we send the confirmation that your delivery has happened, we're also including a $5 off your next order code. And then the plaintiff's bar is going to argue that that transmutes the text into a marketing text. So you want to be very careful to make sure that you know whether or not you have marketing text going out. Yeah. And really keeping an eye on you know, these new state laws. Florida is an example. There are others. And make sure what you're managing to um, those state laws because they are more uh, important to the plaintiff's bar, let's just say, given that the ATDS claims are no longer as lucrative. So tip number two, um, if you're using pre-recorded uh, pre calls, um, number one, reconsider using them for a marketing purpose if you are. Uh, there is another statute, the telemarketing sales rule, that I will just say makes it really difficult to do uh, a pre-recorded message call for a marketing purpose legally under any circumstance. Um, there are arguments of there's ways to do it legally, but you know, it's kind of a gray area and this has become the low hanging fruit of uh, calls that plaintiff's lawyers are interested in. So I would, I would encourage you to reconsider using them for a marketing purpose. If you are going to use them for any purpose, you need to make sure you have the appropriate level of consent. And then you really need to understand the, the breadth of what is a pre-recorded message call. If you have live agent calls that Live agents are then, you know, permitted to leave a recorded voicemail where a voicemail or an answering machine is reached. That could still trigger the statutes. Of course, there's arguments we would make against that, um, but the prevailing view seems to be that voicemail drops even when the phone doesn't ring, and leaving, you know, pre-recorded messages on live agent calls uh, just for the purpose of a voicemail can hit the trigger as well. And then we have some plaintiffs, lawyers that I think are really, really far out there. They're trying to argue that text messages are pre-recorded messages. I don't think that's going to be successful. It hasn't been successful yet. And then finally, you know, one of the things that Becca and I run into most often is that, you know, where you have disjointed groups, and I don't mean this critically, but you have various groups throughout a larger company, you know, just kind of doing inventory of how are we communicating with customers in our various segments? Because sometimes, you know, there's gaps in compliance that are easily solved just because we don't, you know, the companies are not aware of what types of communications are going out and emanating from what groups in the company and what vendors are being used. With respect to third-party vendors, uh, relying on third parties in this area, I, I think uh, the Supreme Court 
uh, use the word belt and suspenders in part of its Facebook decision to talk about you know, what Congress was intending to cover. When we talk about the use of third parties in TCPA, it's belt suspenders and extra pair of pants. It's the most, uh, I'd say, risky area of relying on third parties. And you really need to do diligence on the front end, know who you're dealing with, monitor uh, what those third parties are doing, and make sure contractually you have your expectations set out very clearly of what you're expecting them to deliver. If it's leads, you want to know they were with prior express written consent, they were not generated using pre-recorded messages, um, and all of these bells and whistles, in addition to, you know, obviously indemnification that would protect you if something were to go sideways. Yeah, yeah where Lori and I first met was uh, vicarious liability. We were each representing different co-defendants uh, who didn't place any calls at issue, but were in giant MDLs uh, getting sued for hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so, you, you need to worry about vicarious liability when you're looking at your vendors. And we spent a lot of time on CCPA and TCPA, and now we're going to push through three other statutes we want to make sure everybody is, is really aware of uh, because of the recent litigation trends. Uh, so SEPA is the California kind of wiretapping, call recording, everything that falls into that. Uh, the Call recording without consent section of SEPA is $5,000 per call damages under the criminal statutes. Uh, there was a big lull up until 2020. There was a lot of flux on how viable is this? What's it gonna cover? But now that it's more clear what it's covering, we see the claims roaring back. Uh, there has to be consent of all parties, not just one before you can record communications. There are some exceptions. But that private right of action where plaintiffs can seek damages of 5,000 per violation or trouble, it just fuels a lot of interest in these statutes. So there's recent innovations in telecommunications technology, like smart home devices that are listening for activation phrases or voice commands that we also see coming under this recording. So an example call recording case uh, is one that's against AT&T right now that we've been watching. Uh, was removed to the Central District of California. We have the plaintiff claiming that he called DirecTV during the pandemic once or twice a month to ask about deals. Sure sounds like somebody might have been, uh, you don't usually call that often, unless <laughs> maybe there's a reason. Uh, says he thought the calls were confidential. He was fighting with the manager during a call, an escalated call. And he said, I'd like the call to be recorded so there'd be a record of it. And then he was told by the manager that all calls are being recorded. And he says he had no warning. There was no phone tree, no other. There was, he didn't know. So he brought a class action lawsuit um, and it got removed out of state court because it only takes a thousand calls at $5,000 damages each to get you at $5 million. And then you can, uh, you know, say that the Class Action Fairness Act applies. So it's up in federal court. AT&T and DirecTV's motion to compel was denied uh, the end of last year, and the case has stayed while the motion to compel is going up to the Ninth Circuit. But again, you know, here you have uh, one person being able to put at issue a massive case and, um, you know, on call recording. There is a cottage industry of call recording. Uh, in, and also in December, so about uh, four and a half months ago, there was a case dismissed on the eve of trial that was being brought against a uh, plaintiff's attorney who does SEPA work. And some people on this call might recognize the name and, and not have been aware of this case. 
uh, but it's Newport trial group, Scott Farrell, he was being sued under RICO by one of the targets of West SEPA demand letter. Um, and they claimed that he was had a scheme and was subject to RICO. And during summary judgment, it came out that Newport Trial Group had been keeping spreadsheets of companies and, and calling numbers regularly to determine if they'd been recorded without notice. Then if they thought they found something, there appeared to be a claim, they would find the plaintiff to call. Exactly the scheme that we all had suspected and known all the time was being used. The question of whether or not that is a scheme and subject to RICO uh, was going to go to a jury because the, the judge didn't rule on summary judgment, said there's uh, questions of fact on whether this is a legitimate business plan or not, and then it settled on the eve of trial. But that's just one group of attorneys that's sitting out there constantly seeking SEPA targets. So uh, you want to be very aware. And then uh, you may have heard there was just also recently a call recording settlement from Wells Fargo Bank, a case that had been pending for a long time, but they had to settle for $28 million. Uh, and telemarketers that were working on behalf of Wells Fargo Bank were secretly making call recordings was the allegation. And this is, again, why Lori said earlier, know your vendors, watch your vendors know what they're doing. So there was a, this class action lawsuit about business to business marketing that uh, these two companies were allegedly calling the businesses to ask about credit card and debt sales volume. They were recording the calls. Wells had, of course, a strong you know, vicarious liability, no principal agent relationship defense, but it had been going for years and it settled. There was just so much money at issue. Non-reversionary $28 million fund covered about 192,000 California members. And again, here it is in Illinois, not in California. These California statutes, we're finding them in lawsuits, class action lawsuits all around the country. Um, and then the plaintiff's counsel got, you know, 9.1 million. And that's just going to encourage more and more and more SEPA action. And then you need to be aware that the plaintiffs are trying to expand SEPA. I mean, there's money, there's a private right of action. So of course they're gonna be creative, especially with new technology. And in fact, Lori's gonna address uh, these cases um, and talk a little bit about what's happening with uh, SEPA claims tied to internet website. So, uh I'd say at the beginning of last year in 2021, one of the most popular variety of filings, maybe second to TCPA that we were seeing in the privacy sphere are what we would call either session replay cases. And these are cases where uh, the plaintiffs were arguing that websites that were using certain either optimization tools or analytical tools, compliance tools that tracked things, you know, visitors' actions on a website, these are your mouse clicks and movements, your scrolling, um, keystrokes, that those that type of uh, software where that was gathering information that would allow a website owner to create a session replay of the user experience, usually for you know, to determine where there are bugs or hiccups in the website. Um, some uh, TCPA compliance tools use that uh, type of software uh, to show that a consumer actually did complete a website consent form. Um, but these types of the use of these types of tools was driving a ton of litigation under the theory that it violated SEPA's wiretapping and eavesdropping laws. Um, and we saw you know, a whole flurry of litigation get filed. 
not only in California, but also in Florida under Florida Security of Communications Act. And as you know, the prior slide showed that one of these actions under California's uh, statute was filed in Delaware. The court found that there was no standing because there was really no damage. These cases on standing had a, had a little bit better reception in California, but many of them have failed. Um, we have, going to the next slide, Becca, there is one case, um, Javier versus Assurance IQ, that I'll mention because it's presently up before the Ninth Circuit on appeal. And in that case, it was Assurance IQ had a web form on one of their websites that was running in the background one of these TCPA compliance softwares that we really like, Active Prospect uh, and Jernaya Trusted Form that helps on your TCPA compliance. Um, but the argument by the plaintiff was that you know, when you land on the website, you haven't yet agreed to the privacy policy and that uh, software begins running. Um, here, the Northern District of California, Judge White dismissed the case twice at the pleading stage on an initial complaint and then an amended complaint because it was not disputed and the court could take judicial notice of the fact that the plaintiff had clicked the view my quote button and in doing so agreed to the privacy policy that the court found disclosed that this type of tool was being used. Um, the case is presently pending before the Ninth Circuit, the plaintiff appealed and their primary argument is that, you know, because you landed on the site before and the tool was running before uh, the agreement to the privacy policy was consummated, that you still have that violation. So it'll be really interesting to see how that case plays out because we saw a huge wave of these cases and then it really died down. And if this case uh, were to get overturned, which we certainly hope that it won't, um, but that could create and reinvigorate the plaintiff's bar to, to be pursuing these types of claims. Yeah, and again, this emphasizes the affirmative acceptance of a privacy policy being something that's, that's nice to have. So what can you do to protect yourself against SEPA litigation? Well, first you need to find out when and if any calls are being recorded. Is there a clear disclosure at the outset of the call? Now, outbound calls are tricky. A lot of companies just don't record outbound calls because if you start an outbound call with a pre-recorded message, like an artificial voice saying it's recorded, the TCPA lawyers are gonna say that's a pre-recorded call. And then you would need to have those levels of consent required for pre-records. So you should check into what kinds of recordings are going on. Video recordings are also subject to SEPA restrictions. Do you want to carve out making recordings in California or other two-party consent states if you're having trouble getting consistent recording notices? And you want to make sure that authorized vendors acting as authorized agents are not recording calls without notice because then, as Wells Fargo's found out, you might find yourself getting sued for their recordings. And then check your privacy policy. Check and consider updating your privacy policy Consider having consumers affirmatively accepting your privacy policy um, and having, having it hyperlinked and not having it uh, be something that is just at the bottom of the page. Okay, okay. So we're going to briefly mention the Video Privacy Protection Act. And the reason we're mentioning it is because we have seen a recent flurry of cases, class actions filed under this act. It has you know, somewhat of a more limited application, so we're going to get through it very quickly, but the, our point is that there's a flurry of activity under this statute. Um, it applies to videotape service providers that 
uh, knowingly disclosed to third parties, personally identifying information that's tethered to uh, a person's video watching preferences. Um, so most of the, the action has been against companies that are you know, streaming video or offering you know, video uh, services or products um, and then are they disclosing that to third parties, the, you know, Facebooks of the world um, and tethering that to uh, a personally identifying information that would allow a reasonable person to link up the, the viewer to what they're viewing. Um, this statute emanated from uh, Robert Bork's experience uh, where a newspaper published 146 different films that he had rented from Blockbuster. Um, so you know, it really does center on uh, you know the the video tape service providers. Again, it's limited application. There is a private right of action, and there are significant statutory damages of twenty five hundred dollars plus. There's been some you know back in the early days, there were some significant uh, settlements, and rolling forward to the more present time, a lot of the action has been uh, related to what type of uh, information is going to link up the um, the individual viewer to the uh, the videos that they're watching because a lot of anonymized data it does get shared um, and what we have seen is really you know courts reaching different results um, dependent upon you know are you just providing anonymized data and the video preferences or is there some anonymized user ID plus another data point that's going to allow uh, the identification of the viewer of the videos. Again, limited application, so, but we did wanna raise it because of the flurry of activity. As far as uh, avoiding this type of litigation, if you're operating in this sphere, you know, first figure out if you're subject to this or engaging in conduct that could be subject uh, to the VPPA. And there are limited exceptions. Consent is one of them. And consent under this statute and some other you know, state laws that are similar is trickier than your garden variety of consent. So if you're in this space, uh, the, the headline is make sure you get some advice on how you're capturing consumer consent and providing an opportunity to opt out if, that, if you're going to rely on consent. Yes, as Laura was saying, this is we've been mostly seeing it against you know Triller, GameStop, TikTok, Facebook, anything that has kind of embedded videos. But it, there's a private right of action, and the plaintiff's bar is going to be creative. So if your company has these kinds of things, definitely you want to know and and get aware of the VPPA litigations. Um, and then our last topic is the Illinois Biometric uh, Biometric Protection Act, which Again, there's other states like with the Privacy Act that have biometric protection. This is the one that has the private right of action. So this is where everything is being brought. And it's really creative plaintiff's lawyers and it's really been expanding into a lot of fields that touch a lot of businesses that I don't think believe they were going to be pulled into this kind of litigation. So again, we're gonna go through this one a little quickly because we don't know if it applies to everyone. Um, but again, you're gonna get a copy of the slides at the end of the presentation. Oh, and we need to give you the CLE code for anyone who is in New York, Illinois, California, Texas. It's already pre-approved. If you want CLE in a state other than that, then you can respond to the email and our team will see if, see if they can get it approved for you in a different state. So BIFA, it was 
put into place like 2007, 2008, but it was mostly unnoticed until 2015. It wasn't really getting used. And then there was a series of five class actions brought against Facebook and Shutterfly for collecting biometric, biometric data of Illinois residents. And then the Illinois Supreme Court said in 2019, there doesn't have to be any actual injury. And as soon as that ruling came out, a whole bunch of pending litigation just settled because it was <laughs> there was just going to be so much at issue. And because so much money came out of those cases that you got this flood of consumer-based class actions and it's still going strong. So there's five features for collecting biometric data of Illinois residents, um, informed consent prior to collection, a limited right to disclosure. There's obligations and retention guidelines for how long you can keep it. You can't profit from the data. And then our all-important provision, the private right of action, statutory damages for 1,000 for negligent, 5,000 for intentional reckless. So immediately you've incentivized class actions like crazy. So some very recent developments, and this is really becoming, it's, always, it's been a big deal for a few years, but the BIPA has just been taking off. So uh, who knows what the statute of limitations is? It wasn't in the statute. The Illinois Supreme Court has taken that appeal. So we'll have information on that soon. Then in February, the Illinois Supreme Court held that employers can be liable under both BIPA and workers comp without preemption because a lot of BIPA has been brought in time cards and things that involve fingerprints or check-ins for employers. And uh, there was an argument that was preemption, but not happening now. And then March 31st, so just last month, Facebook had already disabled the tagging feature. Uh, if you remember, it used to like say, do you want to tag this person? And if you are a Facebook user, you might've noticed that has stopped asking you if you want to tag somebody. That is a reaction to a BIPA suit brought by customers. And that was settled and a big payment made out, but there's non-customers. So the Zeller face, Zelmer versus Facebook Inc. case is one where a non-customer says, I might end up being in the background in Becca's party photo that she's posted up and now Facebook can scan my data and do everything else and I have a class action. Uh, Facebook did not win on its summary judgment, um, but on, on everything, it, it won on the most important thing, which is the judge just, this is very recently again last month, said that, uh, a company needs to notify its known users and customers. And how is a company going to figure out who might be in the back background of a vacation photo if they post it on Facebook? So they won on that. They did not win on the claim of that they didn't have a public written policy about their biometric practices. But then the judge invited briefing on whether or not this would be a single violation of the BIPA rather than one for kind of everyone. So there's status conferences. Facebook has won on the big thing for now. Um, but again, we expect BIPA to just continue going strong. There was a recent case against American Airlines for their voice IVR because collecting and analyzing voice patterns is a biometric information. Um, that one was found to be preempted by the Airline Deregulation Act. But just this week, a federal court did, refused to dismiss claims against Confido uh, which has been uploading facial geometry from photographs. So not me, it's not looking at me live. It's looking at a photo of me and upgrading. They were trying to argue that's not an actual person's face. 
lots of arguments, but the judge is letting it go on. Uh, we're watching a few cases. We're watching ones about a, a software developer using facial recognition technology that was harvesting data from OkCupid dating profiles. And again, that one is in uh, District of Delaware right now. Uh, these things end up moving around even though it's Illinois uh, uh, people that are the, in the class as the class members. And then there's a refrigerator cooler screen, smart coolers that were going to be uh, replacing refrigerator cases in stores and doing interactive things using people's uh, gender and, and so forth that they could ascertain from the photos and that's now getting sued. So invented technologies find themselves getting pulled into court in Illinois. Yes, so, and, um, and if anyone has any questions, we didn't leave much time for Q&A, but uh, you feel free to, um, to send us an email or we would be happy to chat by phone and answer any questions you may have. Exactly. Um, yeah, in terms of the, the tips for this last topic, it's just find out when and if biometric information is being captured and note the, the kinds of examples here that have been found or are established to be biometric information in Illinois, it's not just, it's, you know, fingerprints, face, hand, retina, ear features, DNA, but also gestures, voice, typing, rhythm, your gait, <laughs> anything that can be used to uh, identify an individual. So you only want to collect biometric information you need. The retention in Illinois cannot be for longer than is needed. You need to have a written retention policy available to the public. That's that one cause of action Facebook is still facing. Establish a plain plan for accessing, storing, safeguarding biometric information, and get informed consent. So before you collect, purchase, receive, or otherwise obtain biometric information, you have to have written release. And um, you can do that in policies that somebody's accepting and clicking, but there has to be a in writing uh, consent for the collection of this. So uh, Lori said, we powered through a lot of litigation and topics and we are at the close of our time. So there's no time for questions now, but please feel free to reach out to either or both of us with any questions you may have.